drama on one. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Learn to type. Learn to drive. Have fun. Write postcards. Letters take too long and you won't do it. A postcard takes two minutes. Be punctual. Don't worry about what other people are thinking. They are not thinking about you. Write quickly. Taking longer doesn't usually make it better. Get up early. See the world. Call everybody by their first name from doctors to presidents. Have parties. Don't agonise. Don't regret. Don't fuss. Never brood. Move on. Don't wait for permission to be happy. Don't wait for permission to do anything. Make your own life. My mission this week is to be more Maeve. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. My name is Gordon Snell. I was married to Maeve for 35 years and very happy years they were too. One of the great interviews which Maeve did was with Miles Dungan in the National Concert Hall. And she was quite nervous before the event, in fact, particularly when she peeped around the curtains and saw how big the crowd was. But uh, once she was launched on stories, she she was a a brilliant raconteur, really. In fact, uh, after that interview, I I think uh, somebody from the the, the stage, uh, a comedian, wrote and said, I think we should go and and tour as, as a stand-up you know? <laughs> because she was just so good at uh, fashioning the story at, at which she did on the spot I mean she didn't uh, plan ahead how it would go on and end but uh, and, and it's just it's so full of incident her, the way she described things she could you felt that she could see it and then she made you see it and uh, she she uh, you couldn't say rambled because she was very concise, really, in, in her memories and uh, how she described them. But she was a brilliant raconteur of uh, things that had happened and remembering the past and remembering encounters. And uh, so I can remember we went to Canada one time and there was a, a rather um, pompous, uh, very uh, grand, uh, famous interviewer who was interviewing her. And uh, so he asked her a question at the beginning and, and intending to amplify much more himself. But uh, she, she spoke for maybe a good eight minutes or ten minutes and without stopping. And uh, so he kind of just decided to, to end it there. And, and, and he, he turned to somebody else and said, well, I think I prized something out of her. <laughs> So he didn't have a sense of humour anyway. Welcome to our Rattlebag public interview. Tonight we are going to hear about someone who retired at the height of their fame, a move much regretted by a host of avid fans and then thought better of that decision and made a tremendous comeback to further rapturous acclaim and glory. But enough about DJ Carey. (laughs) We've got a full house this evening in the National Concert Hall for a very special guest. She won't mind, I think, being called a household name, but would probably quibble at being described as a national treasure for fear that the National Museum would insist on housing her in Collins Barracks for the rest of her life. Her name is associated with 
generosity of spirit, great good humour and warm-hearted insight. And her novels aren't bad either. Two years ago, like that famous Kilkenny hurler, she announced that she'd had enough. And the people of Clare are today mourning DJ's change of heart. Nobody regrets, though, that our guest tonight uh, did change her mind, and nobody regrets the publication of her new novel, Quentin's. Would you please welcome Maeve Binchy? is about a restaurant. I reckon I'd make a pretty good wine waiter, <coughs> but maybe not. Um, Maeve, perhaps you could start, if you wouldn't mind, by just reading <coughs> some of the novel. We'll talk about the novel a little bit more uh, later and find out what it's about for those who haven't read it. Um, maybe you could start by just uh, reading some of it and perhaps just put, uh, put in context what we're about to hear. Well, now that I've, I've recovered, <laughs> I was, the great thing about being inside there, you think it's just a nice quiet room and there's a few people out here. If I'd known this, I'd have been running as, uh, lamely down the road, I'll tell you this. This story is a collection of short stories, very cunningly disguised as a novel. There's 16 short stories flying in formation and around them is wrapped up one big story. I set for the last two years, every time I wrote a short story about anywhere, I set it in this restaurant called Quentin's Restaurant. So I think I've still retired. I'm not doing a book tour. I'm not going to America or Germany or anywhere like that. And I'm not going to be on anything. I just thought this was a quiet, intimate little thing. I was told that Rattlebag was a kind of a gentle thing and that Miles sat and had, unlike a lot of other interviewers, he'd actually read the book, and he would sit and listen to you and talk to you, and there'd be about 40 or 50 people. It's not like that, but then things are ever thus. There are 1,200 of your closest personal friends here tonight. <laughs> What's the problem? And I'm delighted to see them all. This story is also, the, the main story is about a woman called Ella, a young woman called Ella, and uh, I, I, she's done what lots of us did in, in our lives, She's fell, she fell in love with a rotter, and he was a bad guy, and he treated her very badly. And it isn't that there ain't no good in men, there are many good men, but Ella did not find one. And this, he was a married man, and he told her that he would leave his wife for her one day, but he didn't, and he has disappeared, and her story is all over the evening papers. And she's very, very worried about it, because while uh, she's, you know, she's a teacher in school and she thinks that she's going to be fired because she's giving bad example to her pupils. So she went to see the school principal. I'll leave whenever you want me to, she said. Well, we don't want you to, the principal said. But where's the bit about giving good example to the little flock, Ella asked. Oh, the little flock would buy and sell us all, Ella. You know it, I know it. I'm sorry, I can't stay, Mrs Ennis. Not after this scandal. But what did you do? You were taken in by a man. You won't be the first or the last to have that happen to you, let me tell you. You're a good teacher, Ella. Please don't go. But the parents, oh, the parents will gossip for a couple of weeks and the kids will make jokes and then it'll be forgotten. 
I don't know if I can face it. Well, what's to face? You only have to look at people, whatever job you do. And presumably you have to earn a living. Oh, I do, Mrs Ennis, I do. Well, then earn it here. Go on to the end of the school year anyway. See how you feel then. But I might want to get out of teaching entirely, you know. Try something different. Well, if you do, do it then, but not in mid-year. You owe us this, and you owe it to yourself. Don't run away. Don't run away like he did. You've been very understanding, said Ella. Imagine an Irish convent school allowing a scarlet woman to stay on. Ah, you're not very scarlet, Ella. You're just a bit pink-eyed at the moment. <laughs> Get back into those classrooms. The one thing we can say about teaching is that it's demanding enough to take your mind off other things. Oh, well, thank you, Mrs. Ennis. Ella, he won't get away with it totally, you know. Even if he doesn't get a jail sentence, he'll get some sort of punishment. Ella shrugged, whatever. He will. He can't swan around here anymore, go to golf clubs, yacht clubs, be recognised in restaurants. Ah, they've all those things in Spain too, said Ella. Not the same. Anyway, none of my business. Hang in there for the rest of the year, will you? And then we'll talk again. You're... Very kind, very understanding. Ah, we've all been there, Ella, just between us. The late Mr. Ennis, as he's often respectfully called, is not late, he's just out of the frame. <laughs> he had a different view of his future, which involved my savings account and a girl young enough to be his daughter. So naturally, I understand. For days and days afterwards, Ella wondered whether she had imagined this conversation. It seemed highly unreal, as did everything else. It was as if she was watching all these conversations on a stage, rather than taking part in them. We'll, uh, we'll revisit Quentin's for the main course later, if that's all right, and we may even have some dessert afterwards. Um, okay, let's, let's start off with what you raised yourself. Did you retire, and if you did retire, why have you come out of retirement? I have written all those short stories anyway, and uh, it seemed like a good idea if people didn't mind my not doing big punishing book tours. I'm getting older and frailer and tireder, and I do find it an exhausting thing, which is, a, and so I, I just didn't know that you're actually allowed to bring out a book of short stories connected by a big one, which makes it into a story. I didn't know I was allowed to do that, and I'm delighted now, shall I be doing that forever, because that's not very hard. <laughs> and, you see, the, but the funny thing, it's not that I don't like meeting people. I've, I've often interviewed authors who actually hate meeting people and I've seen I've met fellow authors who, who don't like book signings I love it I'd be there forever people would be asking me questions about uh, uh, you know saying could you sign this uh, for Marcella and I'd be saying who's Marcella because I'd be so <laughs> interested to know and you know the line would be getting longer and I'd be so interested and really and what happened when Marcella was 25 because I was to be so interested in the story and I did love it but it was so exhausting that you never got time to do anything else so that's what the whole retirement and you see what happened was I was 60 uh, two years ago and therefore I, was, I had to leave the Irish Times so in my own mind I had to leave the Irish Times so therefore to, to give up my column there and once I gave up that I thought I'd have a bit of a rest so that's, that's the retirement bit over now. Now that, now that I know I can write short stories and link them all together, so I'll be there until, <laughs> until I drop. <laughs> now, um, we're in this elegant hall, and 
this, I think, probably has other associations for you as it does for me. Before it became the Alec, well, it was always in Ellicott Hall, but before it became the hall, the National Concert Hall that it is, uh, this is where you did your university exams. Does it, does it bring memories of UCD flooding back, happy memories? Indeed. But then all my memories, I'm afraid that I'm a little bit over rose tinted in my memories because I had that thing that nobody really writes about much. I had a hugely happy Irish childhood. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't miserable and I wasn't poor and nobody abused me or ran after me or beat the legs off me. But, but that puts you... Uh, that, that puts you at an enormous literary disadvantage. <laughs> I mean, well, how can you possibly have a writing career if you did not have a miserable Irish childhood? Well, it, it, it was an odd thing, but I suppose in a way I came into it by accident. I never intended to be a writer. I was going to be a judge, not, not just a barrister, but a judge. Uh, my father was a barrister, and in the years uh, when I grew up, in the 40s and 50s, uh, if you were middle class enough to be a barrister, your wife did not go out to work because it looked dreadful. It looked as if the man wasn't able to support her. That's what it was in those days. And it would look terrible. My mother only had one friend who went out to work. Now I have well, uh, hardly any friends who didn't go out to work, any married friends. Everything changed very much in all those 40 years. And um, so uh, I, I knew that judges were terribly important people because my father used to speak of them as a barrister with awe and hoping that you know, there'd be a right decision and a wrong decision, he'd win a case. So I thought maybe I could be a judge and <laughs> decide. I had no doubts about my own wisdom and all these things. I could have been a great judge. Because to be a judge, first of all, you had to be a barrister or, or a solicitor. And so I, when I, start, I started doing law, and I was really only about five minutes into law when I realised I was a, the most unsuitable person in the world for it. So you never would have made it to the Supreme Court? No, I wouldn't have made it to the Supreme Court. I wouldn't have made it to getting, being called to the bar or anything. There was so much meticulousness in learning things and taking things seriously and, and reading things thoroughly, things that wasn't, weren't at all my, my long suit. So uh, I, I did a degree in UCD, and as you say, this was UCD, and it was very grubby and smelt of dirty raincoats and chips, chips and feet. Do you remember feet? feet smell yeah. feet. That's because in here particularly, because this was I used to play badminton in here, so that was the smell of the feet. That would great be my feet. feet. Yes, great feet smell here. And uh, then we used to uh, come in. I went came to UCD in 1956 um, on a wet October day, and I was just so excited by it because we'd been to a convent school and at I had no elder brothers who might have introduced me to the glorious world of men about which we talked non-stop at school <laughs> from the age of 13 until 17 we talked about men non-stop and we were so excited about them and what we would do when we met them and mainly I think I talked for two years about the wedding night and what you <laughs> what you'd do on the wedding night and would you go to the bathroom first or would he go to the bathroom because the bathroom would always be down a corridor because we never understood en suite hadn't come to Ireland at that stage and would you go to the bathroom first and would you be lying on the bed waiting for him when he came back or would, would that be too eager or or forward. You, or forward, or would you pretend to be asleep, or would that be too backwards? So, I mean, I promise you, this is what we talked about non-stop. And then we suddenly got out into the world where men were, which was 1956 UCD. And they were very different than what we thought, because they weren't as full of this wonderful lust 
that the, the nuns had taught us. I was taught by a wonderful group of nuns who were the Holy Child Convent nuns in Killiney. They were a bit posher than, uh, than us, for a starter, and they were, a lot of them were English, and they had come over to Ireland. I think they regarded it in those days as part of their missionary duty, you know, to come to <laughs> But they were marvellous women, and they, not one of them ever said a word to me as I wrote dreadful, cliche, caricature nuns into my books and stories. I never had a word of attack from any of them. They were very, very nice, but they did fire us with the notion that it was lust. And one of them must have told me, because I couldn't have made it up myself, that the way God had arranged things was for the propagation of the species. That the propagation of the species wouldn't happen, because we were all dead lazy, we wouldn't bother propagating ourselves, <laughs> unless there was some mild pleasure attached to it. So some mild pleasure was attached to propagating ourselves. And he put into men an insatiable lust. And he put into women something called holy purity, which was to <laughs> beat them back. So I came into these halls in UCD prepared, because I was very, very religious. I was prepared to beat back all this lust. And I was a bit disappointed there wasn't more of it, you know, get, getting ready to, to, to beat it back. But I had a wonderful time. I was nervous that day. I can remember, I think every time I come up Earls for Terrace, I think of that day of getting out. It's so strange getting out at the station that we then called Westland Row, which is now Pierce Station, and coming into what we then called UCD, which is now the National Concert Hall. And everything has changed so much. But I can that feeling of that day is still the same. Will I be all right? Will it be like, will going to university be like going to a, a dance or, or is it like a beauty competition where the race is going to be to the petite and the pretty and I'm, I'm going to have an awful time. And you know, about, about two days, I discovered the blinding truth that fellows were like the rest of us. I mean, they were kind of normal and they just, you could have chats with them and you'd have beans and toast with them and chips in the cafe and you'd talk about the subjects you were doing and the match you'd be going to. And and I had glorious four years here. I did a, a H-dip as well uh, to be a teacher. I was very happy. And what happened then? What did you communicate about lust to the pupils that you then subsequently taught when you, uh, when you became a teacher? Well, I didn't feel, since I wasn't in religious life myself, and I wasn't necessarily trying to safeguard the morals of the whole country, I didn't, I didn't feel it necessary to tell them that business about the insatiable lust in men and holy purity in women. Actually, I think the world had moved on in those four years. I don't think they'd have believed me, really, for a start. And I taught in several schools. I taught for a year in Cork, first of all, when I uh, got my, my diploma. I taught in Cork for a year, and then I taught in uh, Dublin in, in a girls' school called Pembroke School, Miss Meredith's School. I taught in a Jewish school, a Jewish primary school up on South Circular Road. And I was very, very happy. With it. And I left lust out of it, really, because we didn't... It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a good suit. I, I, I taught a lot about history. I told them lots about all the marvellous things in the Roman Empire. And I don't know whether they ever learned any verbs in Latin. I taught Latin as well. There were any verbs or nouns, but they knew all about the goings-on in the Roman <laughs> Empire. <laughs> they still tell me about it sometimes. Um, were, were you the kind of teacher who, for whom the, the best things about your profession were June, July and August? No, I did like the kids very much, and I always wanted them. I wanted them to remember me well. Whether they, they, I suppose I was so 
large and and kind of overpowering and I took no uh, no no prisoners in the school I was very loud and frightened them at the beginning on the grounds that somebody told me once that you've got to be very tough on day one and you can always soften up after that and we used to wear a gown a dreadful gown covered in chalk and uh, I, I had to sail up and down the room t and terrify them and uh, and they were very very nice the girls and in fact a very funny thing happened a really funny thing happened lots of my pupils outstripped me and became eventually in the end my bosses i mean there was a time in the irish times when caroline walsh whom i taught it was the features editor of the irish times and rena hollihan whom i taught was on the news desk and these people were sending me to do jobs anymore <laughs> and i had once been terrorizing them and giving them you know things to stay in after school so the great world of education means that people move on and on and on and nothing stays the same i loved it i loved it. i was very happy as a teacher and there's a, there's a pretty well-known story about how you got into journalism, but like a lot of well-known stories, I'm not sure if it's absolutely true. Is it true that you're, it wasn't really you directly who did it? No, and I'd love to, because I'm always advising people in my uh, role as agony aunt, saying you are entirely in control of your own life, you must make all your own decisions. And that really is one of the things I believe in very strongly. But in my own case, it was not so. I was in the Jewish school and I taught there. The parents were very kindly uh, gave me a ticket to Israel to go for the summer of 1950. It was a return ticket, was it? It was a return ticket. <laughs> it was a return <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but it was a return ticket. And I went to Israel and my mother and father were nervous. I was the eldest of their brood and to go away. And to go in 1963 to... Um, uh, to, to, to a, a, the Middle East, which was a fairly turbulent place even then, and nobody that we knew had ever gone there and to work in a kibbutz, which they'd never heard of before, that I was going to do, seemed kind of an nervous thing. So I promised them that I'd keep in touch. I'd write to them every day or every two days. And I wrote these long letters to tell them all the, that I was doing. And I was, one day I'd be plucking chickens, other days I'd be injecting day-old chicks, and I was cooking chickens, and I had a long, long relationship with the lifestyle of a chicken, I can tell you that. <laughs> and then, then I would be doing oranges and all the rest. It was a lovely, lovely time. And I told them how the, the whole idea of the sort of socialist theory of a kibbutz worked, and that everybody looked after the children together. I thought it was grand, and I was telling them, informing them like this. And when they saw it, because they were very, very um, enthusiastic people to whom all their geese were swans, they thought this was brilliant. They thought Maeve is brilliant out there. First of all, she's alive because she's writing every two days. <laughs> That's good news. And my mother was desperately worried about me. Uh, one of the worries that she need not have ever had. I remember her saying to one of her friends, I'm very worried about Maeve going to that place, you know. Will she get enough to eat? <laughs> there would be no place in the world that I wouldn't have found enough to eat. And I found plenty to eat out there. But I kept them totally happy by sending them all these um, lovely letters. And my father said, I think this is brilliant. We'll get it typed. And by, it was typed and it was sent to uh, a newspaper. When I came home, I couldn't believe it. There I was. I had three quarters of a page of a newspaper. Irish girl describes communal farm and kibbutz in Israel. And I said, isn't it extraordinary? And I was never greedy. I was never greedy ever about money. But I couldn't get over the money because I got 17 pounds for it and we only got 14 pounds a week for teaching. I got 17 pounds for one article. Imagine, should no wonder people be writers. And then I wrote for four years and never got anything published again. <laughs> and so in those four years, the reason I got nothing published, <clears throat> I know now, but I didn't know then, because I was writing in a desperately show-off way. And I thought, well, if this is what I wrote without trying, goodness knows what I could write if I tried. But of course, uh, that was not the way I was to have any success. I, my only success has been writing as I talk. And I talk 
uh, without, as you can see, without much pause for, for breath. <laughs> and I write very speedily without much pause for, per, for punctuation or anything. And that's, I think, the way an awful lot of Irish people uh, have found a voice for themselves by writing in that way. And I didn't know that but until three or four years later. And I met Michael Viney from the Irish Times. And I asked him, I said, what do you have to do to get an article published? And he said, what do you care about most today, just today? And I said, well, today, I think, I understand most of those 15-year-old girls much better than their mothers do. And he said, write that. And I wrote a marvellous piece about how I loved 15-year-old girls. Their mothers hated them because they were all filthy and they stole their mother's makeup and they were sulky. And I loved them because I saw the poetic side of them and the decent side of them at school. And I, I think that teachers knew far more, teachers would be having much more control over them. And it was wonderful, because a big controversy started. And then I was more or less there, because yeah. I realised that that's what you did. You had to write about what you cared about and what you knew. You became, amongst other things, woman's editor of the Irish Times. Were you ideally suited for that situation? Clued into fashion, uh, well up on cookery, all that kind of stuff. Now, I mean, you were great on chickens, I know. I was good on obviously. chickens. I'll tell you, I was the most unsuitable person in the world that the Irish Times could have found to be woman's editor. I knew nothing about fashion, and the, my theory about fashion was, if all those little skinny things could get, buy clothes, let them go out and buy their own bloody clothes. <laughs> I wasn't going to be writing about clothes to fit them. And I didn't have any knowledge of cooking because I had never cooked. We lived at home and the meals were put on the table for us. I had never cooked. But I thought, well, I'd better get somebody who knows how to cook. So I got Theodora Fitzgibbon, asked her if she would write regularly for our pages. And uh, Gabriel Williams was a regular fashion writer. So I never had to write about either cookery or fashion, which meant then I could get on with the things that I did care about uh, for, for women, which is mainly to, well, to encourage them to be braver, if you like, and not to be... Um, putting on an act, fooling each other and themselves and uh, in, in, in some kind of ridiculous mating dance. Uh, that if you're quiet, men will respect you more because you're not going to be interrupting them. Yes, but then also there are normal men out there who might actually like to talk to you. So if you're quiet the whole time, what are they <laughs> going to see except a person with their mouth closed, you know, look, looking at them? So anyway, we did, a, we did quite a lot of things like that. And all of those... Um, uh, managed very, very well, because Theodora and Gabriel, well, Gabriel has still been working right in the Irish Times until now, and Theodora, until she died, wrote in the Irish Times and read, wrote many cookery books and was wonderful. But I'm going to have to ask, because I, I, in this great maelstrom of people here, I've already seen about three or four faces that I know, so I'm going to have to ask the forgiveness of people uh, if I tell a couple of stories that I have told before, because it would be lovely to, to be able to have brand new stories for an outing. But I don't. And if I could just tell my... Can I tell you my story about Theodora? The, the, this is the, the, the deathless instruction, hold the cookery page. <laughs> yes. Uh, Theodora used to, to write her articles immaculately typed. I cannot tell you. Theodora had a terribly posh voice that would cut through steel. And Theodora thought that I knew all about cookery because I was the boss of the woman's page. And I used to say, that's very good, very nice, that piece about marmalade oranges. Pretty good, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> I was just so glad to have the thing in, the right length, tidy. And sometimes Theodore's uh, husband, George Morrison, who was a filmmaker and took lovely pictures, would take a picture. Now, I can't remember in the Irish Times if we ever paid him for any of these pictures, but it was always lovely when he did give, take a picture. So anyway, one day I was dying to get home. Uh, was, uh, my father was at home alone. And I wanted to go home and to be with him, and I was, it was taking forever the day. And I thought, well, I know now, maybe 
actually, it was a cookie page, it won't be too long because Theodora's done all this. I hope George had sent a picture. George had not sent a picture. So I was unreasonably annoyed with George. And it was, it was veal recipes, and there was all these things, um, uh, veal marsala and veal holstein and the veal casserole and all these things. So I looked at them. There was never a mistake. What was I looking at? There was never a mistake in Theodora's writing. It was perfect. So um, I sub was all the right subbing marks on it. And I thought, I've got to find a picture to go with it. But I didn't have any picture because I hadn't sent one out in time, it was my fault, so I had to find something that was about that shape. I found something that was that shape in my, in my file of emergency pictures, which I always kept. And what I found in there was a casserole with lots of knives and forks sticking out of it. So I took this that and I said, underneath it I typed, tasty veal casserole, excellent for a winter evening. And I went home uh, on the train to Dorky and I went home and my father and myself were sitting down we were having had our tea and then we were looking at the nine o'clock news and the second item on the nine o'clock news froze my blood to terror. The second item on the news was uh, Dr. Christian Barnard was coming out of the uh, Grootshore Hospital in, in South Africa and it said, Dr. Barnard, after his second heart transplant operation, and I said, that's where I saw that picture before. <laughs> so, <laughs> what I thought, what I thought was where knives and forks were clamps and forcing, and then holding the heart open. An unfortunate happening and I kept saying oh my god oh my god and I said to my father what had happened and because he was a lawyer he said admit nothing <laughs> admit nothing so I said yes I know I have to admit something daddy and we had no car we had no car so I started to run from Dorky into the Learsbridge <laughs> Now, before I, uh, before I, I started, ra I said I rang Mr. Gageby, who was the editor. I said, Mr. Gageby, and uh, to ring Mr. Gageby at ten past nine at night, you know, you really, the world, would, third world war should be starting before that. And I said, Mr. Gageby, it's me. Yes, yes, what is it? And I said, Mr. Gageby, I'm afraid we're going to have to hold the cookery page. I beg your pardon. He said, I said, it's not a veal casserole. It's, it's a heart operation. It's open, <laughs> it's, it's open heart surgery. And I could hear him ask for the page to be brought him. And he said, this is bad, he said. This is very bad. The only newspaper in the world to be prosecuted for cannibalism, you see this? <laughs> so, I was like, this is, this is the end, my career is over, run, run, run. I ran down the hill of Nuttonacree Road where we lived. I ran and ran and ran, hoping there was going to be a train. But the trains are few and far between those, maybe I should run to the bus. And there was a man passing and I stopped the car. And I told him what had happened. And I said, are you going anywhere near Delir Street? He said, I am now. He <laughs> <laughs> came up in the lift with me and everybody on the whole floor, it was now 10 o'clock and everybody was there. And I could always, the bloody woman was all I could hear, that bloody woman was here. And I said, I'm here, I'm here, Mr. Gage, I'm here. I said, what, what are you going to do? So anyway, uh, the awful thing that you, the thing you dread most, and the lawyers were around the page, and people in suits, and they're all standing around my desk, and they're opening drawers and things, private drawers of mine, and finding little miniatures of gin, and you know, uh, all kinds of things that they shouldn't have been finding at all. Terrible things. And they were in there, and I was, uh, and, and Mr. Gage now, it was a terrible tick in his forehead, and he said, 
um, you have five minutes, you have five minutes to find a picture. There's no time to make it bigger or smaller than the rest of it. Get into what you laughingly call your files and find something better than that. And there seem to be a semicircle, there seem to be as many people as there are in this room around me. And I finally found the only picture that was the same size, which was uh, an advertisement, I think, uh, for Wedgwood. You know, Wedgwood would send you the odd free picture for an advertisement. It was a, it was a Wedgwood egg cup, anyway, with an egg in it. And, um, <laughs> I wrote, I typed underneath it, why be content with a boiled egg? <laughs> the sound that you hear under the applause and laughter was Theodore Fitzgibbon <laughs> rolling in her grave. Um, you, also, you also worked as travel and tourism correspondent for the Irish Times. Now, every journalist alive at some point wants to be a travel correspondent, even if it's only for two weeks or something like that. Was it all it was cracked up to be? It was lonely sometimes, you know, if you went off to places by yourself to, to look at things. It was lonely, but I was a very bossy journalist as I had been a school teacher, and so I was constantly telling people, for example, in my column, why go on holidays with somebody who just happens to have the first two weeks off in June as well? Because very often you want different things. Why don't you go on your own and be brave enough to go on your holidays on your own? Nowadays, young people obviously do that, but in those days it was considered a sort of sad and friendless thing to do, to go on a holiday, as if you were so awful that nobody else would go with you. So I was busy saying that you could have a great time on your own, you get to talk to people, and indeed you could, and I met lots of great people and great adventures. But one of the worst things that happened to me on my own on a holiday was the time there was a free trip came in uh, we weren't allowed to accept free trips except if they were called inaugurals in other words it was the first trip of a, of a line of an airline so I suddenly about two minutes notice I was told that I could go to Taiwan uh, and I knew nothing about Taiwan I read a great book about about it all on the, on the way and you had to stay three or four days in Taiwan and then you could come home slowly stopping off at places this was a fantastic trip and all I had to do was to try and find something interesting to write about each place and I could do it and I went to Taiwan and it was this is a long time ago this is nearly 30 years ago now and um, I went to Taiwan and in those days it was a very different place than I believe it is now in those days it was a tiny little island where all the American troops which was Formosa it was where all the American troops were uh, having bad relationships with the local Chinese and therefore never went out. So there was just local Chinese people there. And there were no tourists. And there was martial music being played on the television the whole time, telling you they were going to invade uh, mainland China tomorrow. Now, this is, was very unnerving. And I went to a hotel, a very small hotel, which served very bad and undigestible hangovers. I, uh, uh, hangovers, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a Freudian slip. Hamburgers is what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had also very bad indigestible hangovers from drinking very, very, very strange kind of Thai whiskey which they had there. It was all the whole thing was very unsatisfactory and I thought, I'm really not doing my job. I must go out there and see what there is to see. I kept trying to get a taxi to Chiang Kai-shek's museum and every time I got one, I, I seemed to go to another motorcycle repair shop. Or, <laughs> and it was, I was just not doing my job and I kept thinking, now you've always bossed other people, so get out there, mate, walk, go out and see it. So I walked along 
a long place, like maybe from here down to the bottom of Grafton Street. And because there were no signs on the road that I could read, because it was all in Chinese, I had to, I was like the babes in the woods saying, well, I've passed a, a motorcycle repair shop here and a, a, a record shop there, another motorcycle repair shop there. And I was kind of doing it, and I went into a place that was a restaurant. I knew it was a restaurant because it had a menu in the window. And when I went in the door, there was all these people sitting down at tables eating. So I don't have a meal there now, be authentic. Don't be such a fool sitting eating these dreadful, dreadful hamburgers in the hotel. So I went in and I got this feeling as I went in the door, like in a John Wayne movie, that my shadow sort of fell over all the people. <laughs> my shadow fell over them and the, the restaurant darkened. There was some light in it before. So I got away from the door, sharpish, and I sat myself down, I smiled. They were all men. And being Chinese, they were petite-sized men, and I, being me, was a very big-sized person sitting at a table over there, and they handed me a menu entirely in Chinese. So um, this was a puzzler, because you couldn't say, I'll have menu A, you know, <laughs> like that, because it, it didn't seem to be there, and I couldn't point to some things in case I might get something that I couldn't eat, like a slug or something. So therefore, uh, I just thought I'd look around what people were having. And at one table there, I saw a man having what looked like sweet and sour prawns. So I thought, fine. And I saw a man there having what looked like beer. And I thought, that would be grand. So I pointed at that. And I pointed at that. They took his prawns away. <laughs> and they gave them to me. And then they took the man's beer. And they gave them to me. And I had the sense, I may have been imagining it, that everybody was eating quite quickly with their jobs. In. I felt that everybody was eating very, very, very quickly. That they were all, uh, you know, doing um, a pretty good job on, on getting it finished before I suddenly spied what they were having. And I might ask for it. So um, I had worked out, like, what would it cost? Taiwanese dollars was the currency. And I was working out, I wonder how much that would cost now. Let me see, at home it would have been, this is before uh, even the metric money had come in. I said, well, at home it would be, um, uh, to be about 11 shillings. I think 11 shillings would be fair to leave that. That would be generous. So I just worked all that out in Taiwanese dollar, and I left it, and the waiter shook his head fearfully. So I put it back into my ear and I said goodbye. I tried to shake hands with him, he wouldn't shake hands. I backed to the door, I smiled at them, and I got out and I found my way home, back to the indigestible hangovers where I stayed. It never left the hotel again until it was time to go. But I thought about it for a long time afterwards. I don't know what it was. Maybe it wasn't a restaurant, maybe it was a private house, maybe it was a wedding. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was a funeral, I don't know, but why did they give me a menu? But what did they say when they went home to their family? <laughs> What description did they give of what came in the door? <laughs> and how it had eaten Yang Ho's food and drank somebody else's beer? And did they live in terror that I might come back again? <laughs> so so I, it was, it, I remember thinking to myself on the bed, it's a pretty poor, I've got the courage now because I'm retired and everything to tell those kind of stories. But I don't think I wrote that story in the paper because I didn't think it showed me in the good light of, <laughs> the cutting edge of tourism or anything like that. Uh, how did you end up working for the Times then in London? Well, I ended up working for the time in, Times in London because of what the nuns described as insatiable lust. Uh, I was not the best chooser of men. Uh, I used to often think to myself that I was, um, you know, like, <laughs> like one of my friends said to me, that I was like 
later on when we came to know them, the heat-seeking missile would go into a room and the most unsuitable man in the room, the most unlikely, there I would end up. <laughs> and so I did this a few times, not to any great success for myself or anybody else. So I thought, maybe I won't fall in love, maybe I'll just be a sort of a marvellous career woman. And you know, obviously I'm not good at finding men who'd be nice. So I met this nice man and he was extremely nice, but he was, he was unsuitable in that he lived in England. And he didn't live in Ireland, there was no jobs in, 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 in Ireland. And he was unsuitable in the fact that he was a sort of the original commitment phobic, you know, why make one woman happy when you could make a dozen delirious, you see. <laughs> so, but he, he, he was extremely nice. And uh, he worked in broadcasting and uh, he was, um, you know, we, we saw each other quite a bit. But I think he was just as unsuitable as the rest, I decided, you know. I must really give the whole thing up. And then one day I saw Mr. Gage, we were putting up a notice saying, we want a man in England to do a features writing, uh, you know, to do an anthropology. And of course, I immediately had to correct the word man. You know, we want a person, you know, like I was always would do. In those days, people didn't think about it. And I saw, I said, you should want a person. And he said, do you want the job? And I suddenly thought, well, now, wouldn't that be very nice? Wouldn't that be very nice? I'd be over there then. I could keep an eye on this fellow. <laughs> like you see, I could keep an eye on him. So I decided, well, I'd better tell him what I was doing. So eventually I went over and I put a butterfly net over his head, which was so big he couldn't, he struggled for a bit to get out. But I nailed his feet to the ground and then eventually I married him. <laughs> so, he, so, uh, so that's why I went to England. And I went to England to be with Gordon, who had worked in the BBC. And again, I'm only telling you this story because it worked out. If this story had been yet another one that had not worked out, I wouldn't be telling you about it at all. But it worked out so well. But you can never be overconfident. I mean, you, know, you could be gone tomorrow. But as far as I know... <laughs> You can, you can never be overconfident. And, 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 and in a way, men are beasts, and the best of them aren't good, and we have to remember all that. But uh, as far as, to my certain knowledge, that he's here in the audience, and he might identify himself if he's somewhere here. Gordon, where are you? Gordon. He's in row R. Can relax. I can He's relax. Still here. He's still here. He's still here. He's here tonight, anyway. Um, now, that was when you started writing fiction, and I think uh, it had a certain amount to do with the fact that you were in London and the fact that you were, to a certain extent, away from familiar surroundings and away from distractions, really. Well, that, that's true, because in Dublin, at six o'clock in Dublin, when your work would be over, there'd be 20 parties maybe to go to. We'd all look at the things that there might be to go to, to say hello to some new singer or say goodbye to some old singer or to say uh, thank you for scampi and rice to some Lever brothers who'd be giving us some soap powders or something like that. There was in London it wasn't like that at all. And also the other thing about London, which was quite a different thing that I didn't know because I'd never lived there before, that in London people don't strike up idle, meaningless conversations with each other <laughs> as they do here. In fact, people in London get very nervous if you do that. And this was, when I went on my um, uh, heat-seeking missile mode, then that was 1973, and you know, the 
you know, being serious. It wasn't the time to be shouting proudly uh, with your Irish accent unless you were quite sure where you were. And so um, people, what I would say, say at a bus stop, because I thought the way I was brought up was it was rude not to talk to people at the, uh, who were beside you at the bus stop, just kind of haughty or something. So when I used to say, say when I get on the bus at Olympia in the morning going to work, and I'd say, well, I've been four... Uh, 73s along now, so there has to be a nine coming soon. You know, you'd say, I would just say that to people like, or, you know, uh, just, just for something to say, so you wouldn't think you were sitting there, like standing there like a stone saying nothing. And people would think you were just straight out of the funny farm and they would move away. <laughs> and this used to really worry me for a while, but then I now know, I now know after years what it is, why they do it. They still do it. They don't know how to say goodbye the English, as a, as a people. We, we seem so much the same, but they don't know how to say goodbye. They're terrified if they talk to you that you'll go home with them. <laughs> that, that's the They're terrified that you'll go home with them and they'll never be rid of you. And you see, they don't know how to say goodbye themselves. They don't know that we know how to say goodbye. When I want to say goodbye to you, or when you want to say goodbye to me, as you will, at some time at the end of this program, it's up to you to the goodbye, you'll say, well, I won't keep you any longer. That's what you'll say. And it'll be so easy. It'll be so easy. But they, nobody ever taught the English that. They're this awful, awful... They're, you know, the English have an awful lot to curse Queen Victoria over because they were all jolly people before that and they were jolly seamen and they went out to uh, sing rowdy songs and all the rest of it. And Queen Victoria started this whole absolute nonsense about better to be seen, not heard, and don't speak until you have something to say. Could you imagine in Ireland... They were black for 40 years. <laughs> exactly. But suppose in Ireland nobody spoke unless they had something to say. <laughs> Pretty silent country. Beggar's belief. <laughs> You're listening to a Rattlebag public interview with Maeve Binchy from the National Concert Hall. Now, a lot of your journalism was straight out of the school of eavesdropping. Um, so not getting out and about as much as a full-time writer, did you have to imagine conversations that you might previously have overheard, or did you just make up those conversations anyway? Why, for books now? You know, well, no, did you have to imagine the conversation for the books, or did you make up the conversations for the journalism? No, I could hear them for the journalism, and not only did I, uh, could I hear them, but I did another great thing which I would advise anybody uh, to do, not only whether you wanted to write or not. I learned lip-reading. <laughs> And lip reading, <laughs> lip reading is the most marvellously satisfying thing. I got a bad, very bad cold once. It was a terrible old flu in London. And everybody got these colds and we all went deaf and we, everything was ridiculous. And there was a lip reading um, course on television. And it was great and I did it and I went to some lip reading classes in Kensington. And it was, it was fine and I, could, I can lip read pretty well now. And the way you do it is you, turn, you, you record the news on a video and then you turn the news right down and uh, then you watch the newscaster's face over and over again until you... <laughs> what am I saying now? You're saying, you said, what am I saying God. now? Very now, That's so, exactly what I was saying. So, so anyway, uh, it, 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 it's fine, it's good. So I can see it. And once I was giving a talk to, I, I, well, to a group, she said vaguely, a group, and there was, just in case the people might be here, and they were all lining up after this lunch to have their uh, books signed. 
I was terribly nervous. I said, like, I'm actually very nervous. It doesn't, I don't sound, I sound as if I'd be talking here forever. I'm very, very nervous of speaking and making a public speech. And I was so afraid I was going to be sick that I didn't eat anything. And I said to the waitress, whom I knew, and she said, you'll have to eat something, mate. God, it's all free, she said. That. And I said, I know, I know, I know. But I, I wait till afterwards, wait till I've made my speech, and then you could bring me a plate of, of cheese and biscuits. And she said, that'll be fine. So anyway, I was fine. There was a big queue coming up, line coming up to meet me. And about halfway down the line, I saw two very elegant women. And one of them was saying, would you look at her eating the cheese and biscuits? <laughs> A plate of cheese and biscuits after that meal. Is it any wonder she's the size? <laughs> <laughs> but she was like way across the room, and I'd seen it as clearly as if she had said it into my ear. So I fumed a bit about that. I fumed only, I mean, because you know you, know, you like to hear good of yourself. This was not good. So I said I'm fumed. And so when she came up, and these two women, and they were saying they were full of plumos, you see, and. Aren't you lovely? Aren't you lovely? It's <laughs> lovely to see you. You look so well. And I said, and you mustn't worry a bit about the cheese. <laughs> you mustn't worry. But I had it instead of the dinner as well as uh, I not, not as well as it. And their faces were scarred. And I loved it. I was delighted. <laughs> I was delighted. I was so childish, really, when you think of it. Because all I suppose they were doing was, you know, up for my health and my cholesterol. But I, I've always been listening to people, and I, you're constantly overhearing things. I mean, if you listen to things and you take them out of context, most of my books I've got the idea from by listening to people. I was on a bus in London once, and I got the idea for writing Silver Wedding, where I heard two girls talk to another, one another, and one said, I've got to go and get a, a silver wedding card for my parents. And the other one said, that's nice. And the other one said, first one said, oh, no, it's not. The worse the marriage, the bigger the card. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, I wonder, is that true? Is that how Hallmark cards made all their money? That all these people <laughs> just get, give cards out of guilt. And so you get an idea over and over again from listening. But nowadays, um, I still listen. I mean, when I'm, I, I don't walk so well, and, but, but very often, I, if I go to um, a, an art gallery or... Um, uh, an airport or a restaurant. I'm quite happy sitting by myself. You can you can actually hear the most amazing things at tables. And once we were, we were in a restaurant in Cornwall, and I said to Gordon, I'm very sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to stop talking entirely, just read the menu at me. And he said, why? And I said, because the couple of the next table are splitting up. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hear it. <laughs> and they were talking about custody of the dog, I swear it. <laughs> they'd been there for the whole week. And I actually nearly fell off my chair trying to get into their table to hear them. You can hear so much. And you don't ever hear anything really very, very new or exciting. What you do hear, which is very interesting, you hear the cadences that people talk to each other. And when I was writing Tower Road, I wanted to have a mother and a 16-year-old daughter going shopping. And the mother and a 16-year-old daughter should never shop together. I mean, these are species that should not be brought together for a shopping outing. And so I, what I went to do is I sat in various clothes shops uh, and I listened. I just sat there. And you see, you can sit there and listen if you put a sort of a look on your face as if you're not the full shilling, you see. <laughs> <laughs> kind of nodding around the place like that. And sort of nodding and people are so happy that you're not saying anything or shouting or anything, they'll leave you there. You nod and nod and nod, write it all down. 
And uh, I, it was wonderful because when, um, when I wrote that book, lots of people said to me, I was very glad, don't do an awful lot of research. And I was very pleased I did that bit because lots of people said, that's exactly what it's like to see. What would happen would be that the girl would go to pretend, I thought this might be nice. And the mother would faint because she mother would say, but that's not a dress, that's a bondage garment. <laughs> And then the, the daughter would say, you don't want me to wear that, that's like something my grandmother would wear. And I just realised that, that if you just listen to them, it's great. So I think anybody from eavesdropping, conversation of judicious eavesdropping and lip reading. Oh, and the other thing is never to hang up on a crossed line. That's another good thing. <laughs> never to hang up on a crossed line. You have grand things there. That's always very useful. That's very, very useful, the cross line. Pearls of wisdom for anybody who wants to write a bestseller. <laughs> Never hang up on a cross line. Now, you, you kept the journalism going for quite a long time while, while you were still a very, very successful novelist. Did you give it up? You never totally gave it up, obviously, but did you give it up on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis because you could afford to? or because it was getting in the way of the fiction? Well, what actually happened was, <clears throat> it was the two things were getting in the way. If you were going somewhere to do um, a promotion, I mean, I, they left me alone in England. If I could get enough good stories every week, the Irish Times in Dublin weren't constantly saying, what is she doing and where is she going, as long as stuff kept coming in. So very often I would be doing a book promotion in some foreign land and I would just try and do a story as well, you know, about where I was. But one day I was in Canada and that's what really made me realise I better not stay on the staff anymore because I was in Canada and I was in the snow in Montreal and going between Montreal and Quebec. And on the radio in the car, it was a French um, language thing, and I heard that uh, on Angleterre that Madame Thatcher had announced an election and the only time they really wanted me in, England, in London was then. And so here I was in the wilds of Quebec province and I was, you know, obviously the Irish Times would be expecting me to write a, as one of the team in London, you know, some kind of analysis of what was going to happen. So I realised that I couldn't really go on forever uh, running from one or the other. And then you see, I couldn't suddenly leave a middle of a promotion tour that the publisher had paid for. So then I decided I'd just go on contract, which meant that I just wrote twice a week. And then uh, when I came back to when we came back to live in London, I just wrote from London. We came back to uh, back to Dorky. I just wrote um, once a week. And then I mean, I really actually genuinely thought you had to retire at sixty. I thought everybody did, and uh, I didn't realise that you could go on forever. I know now. Which you can, hopefully, you will. Uh, now the, you mentioned you were talking there about uh, the women and the, the men in your novels. The women tend to be positive forces in the novels. The men, some of them are good, but. Uh, they tend to be negatively portrayed. Is that the way you think it is in life? That's how you see males and females in life? No, in fact, not at all. Because, in fact, the greatest kindnesses and generosity in life, to me, have been, you know, have been shown by men. Uh, my father was a very kind, wise, gentleman, and a very quiet man. And, you know, he was... I, I was of the noisier, uh, more extrovert, showy branch of the family that he certainly would not have been able to go along to. He used to say when he went to a party, he hated parties. He said he was always trying to find a background in which to skulk, you know, that he could do that. And he was very quiet, but he believed we could do anything. He believed his four children could do anything, which was great. So I certainly had no bad father figure. And I had a host of extremely nice male friends, you know, while I was in uh, college and afterwards as, as a teacher. And in journalism, again, it was lovely. You know, it was a very equal job, journalism. We were lucky in the Irish Times in those days, and I had a very nice boss, uh, who, the news editor of the Irish Times, who employed a lot of women. He took us from jobs that none of us 
were um, were actually had a background in 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 daily journalism in Ireland. I was a teacher. Mary Marr was been a writer in Chicago. Mary Cummins was a nurse. Nell McCafferty was a teacher. He employed us all and uh, gave us all our, our head to get on with things. And he had faith in us. And if it hadn't been for him, <coughs> I think this every year at the time of his death, <coughs> I always think if it hadn't been for Donald Foley. I would never have got into a newspaper. I've had nice publishers, men publishers, who have always been very, very good. So it's not really for myself, but I have lived through the time. If, you're, if you've lived through the strange 60 years that I have, you saw in Ireland there were quite a lot of quite humble women who were put down by men. The women I knew in their 20s, their early 20s, who were just a teeny bit pregnant and got married and were grateful forever to the man they married, as if that which had made them pregnant had been just entirely unilateral business of their own and had nothing to do with the man. They were always grateful that the husband hadn't run away. I knew a lot of those cases and that women were so humbled. I met far too many women who used to say to me, oh, I'm nothing, I'm only a housewife, which is, I'd want to take them and shake them until every tooth in their body fell out because of that, when I would know how hard they worked and how well they had raised a family. So when I sound a little bit anti-men, it's not as if it, I am anti-man myself, I'm not at all. But I wanted to try and write books where women were seen to be strong. And it's like a ship which lists to one side. In order to get itself straight, it has to list to the other side as well. So I think I've, I, 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 if, if, if you find a lot of very strong uh, and vocal women and not so many strong and vocal men, uh, it's to, the ship is listing to that side until the nice, bright younger people, they can sail it along on a fair course. Now, you've, you've travelled a lot. You could afford, if you, if you wanted to spend months in interesting places, to do the research for novels and then set the novels there, but you still remain rooted in Dublin. Is that uh, love or disinclination to write about other places? Well, <clears throat> since I've always, uh, what success I've had, has been um, entirely due to my writing about ordinary things and ordinary people. I don't think my books would be any more popular if I went off to write about something new and exotic and strange. I don't do much research, as I was saying to you. I don't do much research at all. And I don't think the books would be necessarily better. But I'm constantly looking at people and human nature. And I'm constantly, every time I see people, I'm, I'm, I'm just wishing sometimes, I don't know how to run my own life at all, but I, I know how to run everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a wonderful friend, a French woman, a beautiful French woman, um, called Elfrida. And Elfrida knows how everybody else should be dressed. You know, I'd have no idea how people should be dressed. I wouldn't notice if you were not wearing your lovely suit, nice dark blue that you're wearing tonight, I wouldn't notice what you were wearing. If you came here in a black poly sack with holes for your arms and legs, I wouldn't notice all that much if you were nice and we were having a good time talking together. But Elfrida would always be saying to me, oh, that man, he would be so nice if he put his uh, collar outside. And very often when you're having lunch with Elfrida, uh, she'll go up and tell that to people. <laughs> Amazingly, even in England, people are interested. She told we were in a, a very posh restaurant I don't know, in London called Rules, and Rules is real old-fashioned, and they sort of it's not a roast beef and very kind of heavy mahogany and all the rest of it. And Elfrida said to me, "You see that man? He is so fat with his shirt inside in his trousers. I tell him he must take his shirt out." Oh Jesus, no, Elfrida, don't, don't, please, we'll be asked to go. Don't. And she, I could hear her talking to him at the other end of the restaurant. And I saw him pulling out his shirt, just like that. <laughs> And she was standing him up and she was putting, well, and, and on the way out he said, thank you very much. And she said, not at all. Now I'm back with other people's lives. I see people. I see uh, couples sitting at tables uh, together in a cafe, not saying a word to each other. 
and I have to hold myself back and from saying, say something to each other, for God's sake. Don't just stand there, sit there looking at, it, at the paper or the floor. Say something. You're meant to be married or living together or something. Please say something. Or you'd like to say to a, a child, please say, tell your mother or father that, they, that you're grateful for something. Don't shrug. I'd love everybody to behave a bit better. I would be, and so therefore, there's thousands of people I'm looking at the whole time and watching them and the way they go on. I don't, I don't need to go abroad. I go abroad for holidays. And, <laughs> and, and that'll do me fine. I don't need to go abroad to find anything to write about. I don't think I do. What drives you mad about your native city then? Well, I suppose, like everybody, uh, I'm so annoyed that we're, our, our litter is so bad. I mean, that seems a very small thing. I'm not a bit mad about Dublin. I don't get angry about Dublin. Because when I went to England, I was really quite lonely. And I wished, I, I, I built Dublin into a pedestal for myself. And uh, we, every time we came over for holidays, we stayed longer and longer and longer. And then eventually we realised, of course, we really wanted to be here the whole time. So we bought a house in and, and came home. And I'm not at all um, annoyed with Dublin. I'm mad about Dublin. And I, I get, I get uh, of course, uh, cross with everything like everybody does. But that's the joy of living in Dublin. Everybody's in a high temper about something today. <laughs> uh, they're all furious about something. And then if you were to ask six months later, if somebody was passing through and said, how did that ever resolve itself? Nobody would know. <laughs> I mean, don't you know over and over again, how did that ever sort itself? I can't remember now. And there was, everybody was purple in the face talking about it. And I think that's lovely. I think, again, that awful sort of Victorian legacy that the poor English had, which they were very, very um, unlucky to have, of things like that you can't talk about religion or politics at a dinner. Well, please, you know, <laughs> I can't talk about religion or politics. Imagine if religion or politics were brought and you couldn't mention them. I mean, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't want to take it even by the throat over them, but I, I would certainly think that they should be mentioned. And I do think also uh, what is marvellous in Ireland is that everybody has a great rambling story. When Gordon came over here first, on his first visit, he said, does every, do you think, he said nervously at the airport when he was coming home, do you think people like me? I said, oh yes, I think they liked you all right, but they probably thought you'd spend most of your life in Parkhurst in a jail. And he said, why did they think that? And I said, because you didn't tell long, aimless stories about yourself, <laughs> like we all do. We all tell long stories about ourselves, and we love hearing them too. And uh, I think it's, um, it's, it's fantastic to be in a, in a city that at the moment you get off the plane, when you come back to Dublin, uh, I feel at home, I've always felt at home here. I, my parents weren't Dubliners, and they used to laugh when we called ourselves dubs, but I've felt a dub because we were born here and always did. And, and how does Dublin, how does Ireland, in fact, come across in translation? Because you're translated in 27 different languages, and I would imagine that, uh, probably in all of them, or possibly in, in some of them anyway, that uh, some of the things that you describe, some of the places that you describe, some of the jargon, the vernacular that you use, is very difficult to translate. Well, that's funny, because sometimes we get, we get uh, queries from the foreign translators of words they're not quite sure of. Like, uh, there was some one piece, uh, I didn't realise I'd written it, but it was kind of seemed obvious at the time, uh, that the, the Germans and the French and the Japanese were very anxious to know um, about it in uh, which it was in Firefly Summer, their children were having a party and they didn't let the dog in, in and that my line was in case he did a scutter on the floor. <laughs> so uh, they had a bit of a problem about that and the American editor used to say to me this character is always 
alagoning and romaging about things. And she said, I know what that word is in Yiddish. It's kvetching, she said. So I know what it means. But what is it in English? <laughs> Do any of us know? And, we, and it's very hard. There is no word for romaging and alagoning. You know, mo moaning and groaning, I suppose, isn't nearly as good. And uh, uh, they sometimes wrote back and they said, what is, I, I, one of the short stories I had to, was uh, he had um, uh, well, a girl accuses her boyfriend of being full of Montrose attitude. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Montrose attitude. What could Montrose attitude be? And you, could, and you feel like saying, well, anything you like, you, know, you can make it anything you like over there, it doesn't matter. But it is extraordinary because uh, to see the books in different uh, uh, nationalities and different covers and uh, in language I can't read and in, in um, I don't know, Korean and um, Japanese. And Japanese books are beautiful. They're, they're little exquisite little books. They look like little bus timetables, <laughs> little pink bus timetables. And the only reason I know that they're mine is that a nice amount of yen arrive occasionally <laughs> and also there's a big, tiny little postage stamp picture of me in the back of one and they never put a picture of me if it wasn't my book so it must be mine and they read them up and down and up and down and they're very small because people apparently read them uh, on trains and crowded buses and things and they read them in installments each book would be four little bits and you would take one with you so I have no idea but I, in, in the French one um, the French ones I, I don't speak any language except French and um, uh, I was, I, 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 so I read that there, and I think I write great in French, because, uh, <laughs> you know, she, it was, I remember reading um, Life Penny Candle, and she was said, uh, do I, said Ashling eagerly, asked Ashling eagerly, and it, it was, instead of, said, uh, instead of eagerly, they say, passionnement. <gasps> great! The lust <laughs> comes back into it again. You see. I was delighted with that. So I think I, 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 do, I do a nice turn of phrase in French. <laughs> now, one of the stated reasons for your quote-unquote retirement was a disinclination to do more book promotional tours, but you found some very interesting experiences and amusing experiences on those tours, and they've been very fulfilling in many respects, haven't they? Well, the book tour, every author, when, you meet, when authors meet each other, they don't talk about, well, the ones I meet anyway, tell you, don't talk about the dark night of the soul and writing and uh, uh, the torture of trying to get the words out. I've never talked to any writer about that. Instead, we all talk about book tours and book signings and going to shops where there's nobody. The, the funniest of all is Joe O'Connor. Have you read Joe O'Connor's mm. piece? Of, yeah. Oh, he is so funny. And to hear him doing it, you could, your, your limbs dissolve in, in, in sympathy for him because we've all been there to a place where they say, what Joe's one is. Uh, uh, when the, the, the book assistant looks around the shop and it's totally empty, he says, that's funny, we had Rodney Doyle in here last week and they were hanging out at the shelves. <laughs> everybody has all these same stories. And I went to Cork once to do a book signing. <clears throat> now, it may be said I didn't write and all that nice things about Cork when I was there. I should have, should have written nicer things about Cork. They remembered, they have bad, long memories in Cork. And, <laughs> And I was wrong, and I went to a book signing in Cork, and there were seven people there, and two of them were my cousins. <laughs> <laughs> and so the other five, I kept, you know, I kept there and kept there. No, don't go, <laughs> don't, don't go and tell me about this. And where do you live? Oh, really? How? You know, what bus do you get to go there? Anything to keep them at the table. And there was a poor little missionary nun. She was home from the missions, and she came over just to see what the books were. And she, she, so I kept asking where she was and what mission she was in. And, did she think it was a good idea to change all their way of life? Um, and then she was starting to move away. But I think it is a good idea. It's a good idea. You should change their way of life. And 
she was dying to go. And I said, I'll read you a bit of it if you like. And, ev and eventually she said, I have no money. I can't buy it. I said, I'll give it to you. I said, I'll give it to you. The Oprah event was, was really a startling one. I mean, it was a, a great surprise uh, because uh, we were at home and uh, the phone rang and uh, the, the, the voice said, um, hello, is that Maeve Vinci? And she said, well, it is. She said, well, this is Oprah Winfrey. And, and, and I think she, she actually said, oh, come on, who are you kidding? <laughs> and she said, this is actually Oprah Winfrey. And somehow she knew that it actually was so that that was the invitation to uh, come over and so we went we had a marvelous trip to chicago which at that time oprah was actually the queen of chicago and uh, and she was a very very good interviewer oprah and she had other other people with Maeve who had been in the same situation as the people in the novel and uh, oprah was uh, you know, very perceptive and very uh, thoughtful and very kind interviewer, actually. I, I, I was around, hanging around in the background, and I was very impressed by her, I must say. So was Maeve. To be on Oprah, of course, in, in the States was uh, absolutely spectacular. Um, seal of approval, if you like, and it did, it did wonders for the, uh, for, the, for the book and for her, her, her other books, too. Um, because because of Oprah's fame, so and that was certainly a, a huge help in her in her American popularity. So uh, we went to um, Chicago and uh, stayed in this hotel there, where Gordon and I were just two days, I think, before before the show. We were just sort of middle aged, no account, out of town folk going in and out of the place. But when Oprah's car came, which is the length of the stage, you know, it's a white car when that came and it was from everybody was standing up and looking at us and we, we could do nothing wrong. she's like the queen you know out there and it was very very nice when you go in you have to give up your handbag uh, and to, they take out your photograph your camera because she's uh, very very hypersensitive about being photographed because apparently there's a kind of an industry in America that just takes pictures of her looking ugly and selling them to 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 um, magazines and she was extremely pleasant and very very easy uh, going and she, what I, I thought about her was terrific. Was there was I wasn't in a place with an audience. I was just in a place where there were four or five women who were discussing the issues that were raised in the book, and it was completely different. I thought it was a book about I had written it. It may be said, and I thought it was about two women who had had both terrible problems, who met by chance and uh, did a home exchange, and who met by chance, and who sorted out their problems in that long summer and also they discovered a secret in the other house where they were, but they didn't tell it. Now that's what I thought it was about. Um, <laughs> the Oprah and indeed the entire American audience as I noticed after I thought it was about something else entirely. They thought it was about should you tell if your if should you tell your friend if her husband was cheating on her. And that's what they thought. And Oprah said you should. Uh, and I said, I don't think you should. And we had this incredible conversation. She said, uh, well, the truth will set you free. I said, well, the truth could drive you mad as well, you know, <laughs> like that. And she's you know, very Baptist and very definite about her days. And I'm much more casual about it all. We got on Grant, and she was very nice and very easy going, as I say. And at the end, there was um, uh, 
I don't know what it was, a lunch or a dinner or something, it was a meal, it was an Irish stew anyway, at five o'clock in the afternoon. And we were all exhausted, and it was, it was being served in the studio. And I said to uh, her, uh, I said, so Gordon came with me, would it be all right if he joined us? And she said, oh, certainly. And she said, we'll, we'll be for seven instead of for six. And so he came in to join us. That was fine. It was great. We were having a lovely lunch. And the guy who had set the table was so annoyed. And he went, She's always doing this. <laughs> my entire table decoration is completely my table plan. is totally ridiculous. I shut up. She came with me. Shut up. Shut up. And she was great. It was very nice and very pleasant to talk to her. But the, the awe in which she was uh, held was extraordinary. And of course, I am certainly not at all uh, in a way that I would think my book is diminished because I have many false minds, many, 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 but one of them is not that I, I do not take my own publicity seriously and I do not think that you are somehow diminished by a lot of other people reading your book. I do not <laughs> think that is so. I think it's lovely that lots of people read your book and, and if she has uh, put, put a good housekeeping seal of approval on a book and made people read to, who haven't read since grade school, that has to be good and I do not think at all that you could be uh, um, somehow made less by making your book more available to everyone. But then that's the kind of book I write, which is just a big general story, which is trying to envelop everybody in it, and it's nothing to do at all with uh, literary writing, which you might want to keep separate and keep only a few uh, people understanding it. Um, you've talked to us a bit about uh, Quentin's, about the structure of, uh, of, of Quentin's. Perhaps you'd just maybe read another, another, sure. another passage from us, and again, just tee it up for us a little bit. Um, I put a little mark on this now, this is gone. Oh yes, uh, this is a bit from one of the stories about when um, uh, Brenda Brennan, who runs uh, the, 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 the Quentin's restaurant, and her husband, she's the front of house manager, and her husband Patrick, this is about how they met. Because these are all short stories, you see, which tell you the, the life story of all the people that you might meet at night in, if, you, if you went to the restaurant. So they met together, and they've been walking out together quite a, for quite a long time. One lunchtime, as she unpacked their sandwiches to eat by the Grand Canal, she said to him firmly that she had her own plans as to how they would spend the evening. I live at home, Patrick, and for over a month now I've been going out every single night with you. Yes, he looked anxious, so I'd like to let them see you, you know, the kind of person I'm meeting. Sure. No, you don't understand. It's not that they want to inspect you. It's not a gun to your head. It's just common courtesy. No, I agree entirely. I thought you were going to say you were tired of going out with me. When we have a daughter of our own, won't we feel the very same way about her and want to know her friends? What, said Brenda? When we have a daughter, it's not the same with sons. But what are you saying exactly? He looked at her bewildered. Oh, when we're married, we will have children, won't we? He was genuinely concerned. Patrick, excuse me, did I miss something here? Did you ask me to marry you? Did I say yes? I, it's quite a big thing. I should have remembered it. I know I should. He held her hand. You will, won't you, he begged. Well, I don't know, Patrick, I don't know yet. But what else would you do, he said, alarmed. Well, a number of things. I might marry no one, or I might marry someone as yet unmet, or I might marry you in the fullness of time when we know that we love each other. But don't we know now? No, we don't, we haven't talked about it at all. But we haven't stopped talking about it and what we'll do. But that's work, Patrick, what kind of jobs we'll get. No, no, it's about the life we'll have together. I thought that was about our life together. This is nonsense. She stood up upset. You can't take us for granted like that. We're not even lovers. She was very indignant. Well, it's not for want of trying, he protested. 
Oh, but not on the sofa of some ghastly flat with half of Dublin about to walk through the door with cans of Guinness any minute, she said. So, what do you want, Brenda? A night in a B&B and for me to go down on one knee, is that it? No, she was hurt and angry. Not that at all. It sounds ludicrous. I do like you, you fool. Why else was I inviting you home? But I want love and passion and desire and all those things too. Not just a casual munching on a sandwich and talking about our daughters if it was all planned. I'm sorry, Brenda. I did it wrong, he said. How does the Ireland of Quentin's compare with the Ireland of Light a Penny Candle or Circle of Friends? Well, I suppose I tried to tell the history of Ireland, in a sense, through the stories of, in Quentin's of how, it, how modern everything is now. The things that I write about in Quentin's would have been impossible in Light a Penny Candle because that was all set back in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And the idea that the girl would have an affair with a married man and that her parents would be sort of aware of it, even though they pretended they didn't know that a man should steal everybody else's money as a money broker and go out and hide in Spain. That would be kind of, that was unknown in the 60s. That wouldn't have happened then. And that people would be corrupt and, um, and in a moneyed society, in a very fast-moving moneyed society. Uh, these were not known again. To, to have a job used to be good enough in the 60s. But I'm again not saying that it was always better there, because there was often a great deal of ignorance and hypocrisy back in the old days. And I don't always think that they were the good old days. I think, I think they're much better days now. I think it's, it'd be very disappointing uh, to, to think always that everything was wonderful in the old days. They were simpler, yes, and it was nice and easy, and you met people and you knew people. But I don't think they were the good old days at all. I think there, there was a f dreadful, dreadful... Uh, I mean, sexual prurience about people who felt willing to condemn other people's lives and lifestyles. I mean, I joke about the, the nuns and the lust and all the rest of it. I, I joke about that. But, and it, was, it did lend an, a sort of an atmosphere of the hothouse to, to my education. But there was also a lot of fear, an awful lot of fear attached to it then. And uh, also, I mean, I, the way people have, were, were to... When I think of the way people in, of my own generation and age get had to give away children, had to give away and separate the bond of a mother and child because of appearances. I mean, it has to be much better now. It has to be a much better world where people can bring up their own children and it will always have a big and extended loving family for them. And so I think an awful lot is much improved. So it is a very, it's a very different world. I think to live during the decades that I've lived through, and you've lived through some of them, not as many, but, but some of them, uh, is a very exciting time to have lived in Ireland and to have seen the, everything change so much. I'm not depressed about that people have become mean-spirited. I'm, I'm, I'm sad, of course, about the level of violence that there would be in the country, which there wasn't when we were young or we didn't hear about it. But in, in general, I think it's a much better place to live and I'm much happier to be living now than, and I wouldn't wish we went back to 40 years ago. Uh, do you think that the literary establishment takes a, a snobbish approach to your work? Well, I don't think about it much whether they do or not, because I'm not the kind of person who would win prizes. But I don't mind that, you know, I mean, I don't mi mind that. I'm, I'm an airport author, in a sense. I'm a, a, a person people would want to be going on their holidays, want to take a book. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to tell a story. I never wanted to win the Whitbread Prize or the Booker Prize or anything like that. I never set out to be that. I love and adore some of the people who, who are the contenders for it. I don't mind, I never hurt anybody, not to my face. They don't say, um, 
uh, you know, out of here, maybe you know, this is for the big boys and girls who ride seriously. They don't. Nobody's ever done that, and uh, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not, I'm not aware of it. But on the other hand, there is a difference between popular fiction and literary fiction. And if there is, well, you know, I, I, I don't uh, get frightened by it. So let it be. Let people. If it's a definition that help people identify what they want to read, let them have it. Mind you, Circle of Friends is on the optional living certificate list for 2004. So uh, if you ever went back to teaching, for example, you could be teaching, <laughs> teaching your own novel. And how, right. how does it feel to be up there with the likes of Emily Bronte, Jane Austen and John McGahan? Well, I, I, there was a marvellous uh, letter in the BBC when George Bernard Shaw was asked for permission to let his, one of his works be used as an educational thing in the BBC Schools programme. And he wrote back this wonderful diatribe them saying, I have no intention of letting my wonderful stories be made instruments of torture for children. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I, don't, I don't feel as strongly as that. I think it might be kind of light, easy reading, and if they can stay with it. See, I often have people saying to me, and they say it as a compliment, and I take it as a compliment. People said to me, over and over. Do you know, Maeve, my daughter is illiterate. She reads absolutely nothing and she loves your book. <laughs> um, do say that. You were asked on French television, no doubt in a much more sonorous and profound way than I'll be able to ask it, what is your philosophy of life, madame? And you had to come up with a very quick answer in French. Have you thought about it in the meantime? Well, it's only the French who would actually ask you, live in front of eight million people or whatever it was, what is your philosophy of life, madame? That's why I prefaced it by saying that it was asked on French television, so I'm not really asking the question. No, it is, it is such a shock, and it was frightening enough to go on this television programme anyway, which was called Apostrophe in uh, France, which is quite, quite a most amazingly frightening programme, where they take a photograph of everybody who goes on it in case one of them kills everybody or then goes back, because very often they've had punch-ups and people knocking them off their chairs. It was the most terrifying thing it's I ever... Jerry Springer. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's much more serious. It's a man called Bernard Pivot, and Bernard Pivot is very, very serious and takes himself very seriously. And um, he was... <laughs> I don't know, somebody had wanged me on this programme and he was, it was going to be terribly good for the book in French. And I didn't... I think he thought that my book was a bit too lightweight for him, you know. I think he felt somewhere along this. This is why the philosophy question was thrown at me. And I... Um, you know, you know when you hear a foreigner on television, and if they misunderstand the question the first time, that's quite charming. It's that like the St. Givens for little girls or something, that's good. But if they can't understand any bloody question, you think, it's, what is this fool doing on the programme and take them off? So I was so terrified. My, I mean, my knuckles were white for the programme, and it was just coming to the end. And he said to me, and I could see my great face on the monitor there. What is your philosophy of life? And the only thing I kept thinking is, I don't know anybody in France. You know, I don't know anybody. There's eight and a half million people look at this. I don't know anybody there at all, and that is great. So this is going to be a great, easy thing to answer, whatever I say my philosophy is. And I, you know them. When, when, when somebody asks you something absolutely horrific like that, and you're totally unprepared for it, uh, very often, the only thing to do is to tell the truth, you know, what you think your philosophy is. Now, I don't actually, uh, I didn't sing the Kenny Rogers song, you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, <laughs> know when to walk away and know when to run, and you never count your money while you're sitting at the table, there's time enough for counting when the game is done. Now, I didn't sing that to them. <laughs> because I felt that would bring a little bit uh, low class for the programme. But I said to him, 
I think my philosophy is that you've got to play the hand that you're dealt. Now, I was able to say that in Dublin accent French. I said that, you play the hand that you're dealt. And you don't keep wishing that you had a different hand. And then to compound the cliches even further, I said, because, I mean, the cavalry is not going to come and rescue you, you know. That's not it. You've got to do it for yourself. And I think I finally ended up by saying, an ugly duckling doesn't become a, conf uh, doesn't become a beautiful swan, except in a fable. But an ugly duckling could become a nice, confident duck. <laughs> That's, that was my thoughts, anyway. <laughs> that, was my, that was my thoughts. And presumably, eight and a half million people in France stared at the screen. And, but I, I, I thought about it afterwards. Started I, thinking of orange sauce, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this is a very strange person. But anyway, um, I, 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 said, I, I read the transcript afterwards. And I thought to myself, do you know me? That's not bad as a philosophy. <laughs> That's not bad as a philosophy at all. You've got to, to play the hand that you're dealt. And that no one's going to come and rescue you. You've got to do it yourself. And uh, that's not bad. And I was very pleased with it. But I was wrong in one thing. I was very wrong in one thing. Eight and a half million people were out there watching the television. And one of them, or four of them, were the Byrne family, Gay, Kathleen, and the two children. <laughs> and Cronus said to Gay, they were in uh, somewhere there, and I was on the television, just came on the television, and he said, John Cronin said, she said, to get, don't we know her? <laughs> and he wrote about it in his column in the Sunday <laughs> World, me thinking I could escape quietly. He said, there she was, flogging the old book in, <laughs> in France as well as everywhere else. So I was wrong that I didn't know anybody in France, but I was, all, but I was very pleased, that, uh, as only the French would do, that they gave me a chance to ask, because I have had, I've had a very, very good deal. Uh, we started about saying about the happy childhood, which was, would, for, for literary standards, would seem to be a disadvantage. It is a lovely thing to look back on my great, um, uh, with great pleasure and on my, on my life and how kind my parents were and how, what good friends I am with my sisters and brother. And, you know, I, I couldn't bear, I couldn't bear a lifestyle where you, there was constant um, uh, coldness or anything like that. And, you know, when I, I often think too of my sister, um, who's uh, both my sisters, my dear friends, but when I was um, three and a half, she was born. And, you know, there was a lot of praying, please God send me a little brother, a little sister, please God send me a little brother. I didn't know exactly how imminent it was. And then when it arrived, I apparently, my mother always told me, looked at her for quite a while, six weeks, thoughtfully. And then I said, I think we'll send her back and get a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for various reasons, I didn't do that. And I'm very glad. I've had, had a great life. I, have, I, I had enough brains just to scrape past exams. I was never an intellectual. We had enough money uh, to, because in those days, it was money that bought you an education to, to, to get me into this amazing UCD. And all you needed to do in 1956 was have enough money and a kind of an, an average brain. It's so much harder in young people nowadays. I was very, very lucky. So if you found me whinging and whining and saying that people were, uh, were bad to me, you know, I'd be a very ungrateful person altogether. I've had a fantastic time. I won't keep you any longer. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Maeve Vinci, thank you very much indeed.
because um, I can't leave talking too long, as usual. A um, couple of questions from the audience. We have everybody, just assume everybody's called Kevin, because he's called Kevin and he's called Kevin, and there's somebody upstairs and I can't see them, so let's assume they're called Kevin as well. Siobhan. Unless, oh no, Siobhan, sorry, okay. Big mistake. Ooh, okay, so let's take, we just, with three questions? Okay, we just, one from that Kevin, one from that Kevin, and one from that Siobhan. So anybody, you've got one right in the front row here, Kev. Okay, so if that Kevin can go and find somebody else who's going to ask a question, and if Siobhan gets somebody who's going to ask a question, and we'll get your mics into position, and away you go. Hello, I was wondering of all the characters you've created, which is your favourite and why? Which is my favourite character and why? Well, whenever you come across a character in one of my books who is a saintly and angelic schoolteacher, that's basically me. <laughs> uh, and so I, I love most of the schoolteachers. In, in Echoes, the wonderful, kind, wise, wise Angela O'Hara, who was so good to her mother and so good to her ghastly brother and so good to everybody. That's me all the time. <laughs> And she stayed on after work at Your school. Your not gas. No, no, I was just saying in terms of the, of the, of the, of the character. That all of the, the things, everything I write about teachers, including Signora in, um, in evening class, who went mad and went off to Italy, and then to try and calm herself, she started to go into teaching, and she was, met a whole crowd in an evening class, and she didn't realise they were all losers and no-hopers. She thought they were wonderful. And that's me again. Anything saintly and good in the teaching line is me. But my favourite character of all is Signora, because I just, just thought I would not have done what she did in, in the story of in the story in evening class to go over and sit and and uh, and look at a man she loved who was married to somebody else the whole time. I couldn't couldn't have done that. But on the other hand, I would love to have run an Italian class and got everybody in the class so interested and excited about the language that they all went mad and decided to go off to Italy together on a trip. And so, uh, so whenever, and every, in the next books of short stories I, I'm going to write, you, I, I'm starting another wonderful saintly teacher, so I see myself rising yet again from the, <laughs> from, from the pages. So that was my idea. Okay, has that Kevin got somebody, yeah? Uh, anybody over here? Come on, stage right. There you go. <clears throat> what is it about Gordon Snell that you like so much? Oh. Well, now. You want us to be here all night? <laughs> Very briefly, I, I often think people talking about uh, their beloved or their other half or my first uh, husband or whatever it is, or, or I think they're often they want to say, pass me the sick bag, you know, about them. <laughs> Because it, it's so it's it's so boring and and exclusive to talk about. I'll tell you one of the things I liked about him very much from the moment I met him, because I think it's a very good sign in a person. When I met him and started to talk to him, I realised he'd had all his friends since he was a very young man. He said he was still friendly with all the people he'd been at school with, and he was friendly with uh, his university friends and all the people he met in the first years in the BBC. And I just thought to myself, that's a nice sign of a person. A person doesn't lose people as they go along the way. And uh, whenever anybody would come back to London from America or Australia, they'd always ring Gordon because Gordon would know who everybody, where, where everybody was and all about them. He was kind uh, to everybody. And also, he, what he does have, which he, more than I do, uh, and I'm fairly sunny, he has a wonderful optimistic feeling that everybody is good unless definitely proven to be the other way. And uh, in a world sometimes which is quite well peppered with begrudgers, uh, I think it's a very nice thing to assume uh, that the world is good. Also, he, a lot of his friends um, wrote plays and poetry and were actors. 
And I've, my first memories of Gordon and constant memories are always standing in the audience, clapping and cheering and uh, encouraging other people on. And as he has had, there's a joke about a man who was getting divorced and he said it was easier to get divorced and change, you know, and change his wife rather than change his jokes. I think, I think Gordon is so patient that he has listened to me tell these stories in far distant lands over and over again, sometimes to bewilderment, sometimes to a kind and generous audience like yourself. And he has listened to them over again, and people have commented to me that he has always laughed with a great sense of newness about it, as if he'd never heard them before. <laughs> and I think if you find someone like that, you're not going to let him go. <laughs> I forgot to mention he's got great legs as well. Yes, that's true. Yes. Very important. Siobhan, who have you got up there? Siobhan, Maeve, you... where are you? Are you? Okay, where you go? Maeve, you've commented that you don't research your books very, you know, enormously. And yet I've been to Sicily, and your description of the life and lifestyle in Sicily was so accurate. How did you manage that? We went to Sicily, um, Gordon and I did, for a holiday. And we went to Sicily, we had a wonderful holiday where we had a hard car and we drove all around the place and we stayed in a, in a hotel in Sicily where the man was called Signor Buonasera, which means Mr. Good Evening. <laughs> and we used to say, Buongiorno, Signor Buonasera. I've never heard that one before, I bet you. Buonasera, Signor Buonasera. And it was, I never stopped laughing the entire time that I was there about Signor Bonacera, who didn't give a damn what we were doing, we were trying to be so polite to him. And uh, I couldn't speak a word of Italian. And we drove these perilous mountains. We went all through these incredible high mountains in Sicily and little mountain passes. And we went into villages where there'd be church bells ringing and people staring out of windows all the time at you. And I kept thinking, there must be a million stories in that. And since, unfortunately, my eavesdropping and lip reading was no use to me, because <laughs> I couldn't speak a word of their language, I had to peep into the places and make them up. So every bit of it is made up. But the memory of the holiday, that amazing holiday, and going back to say good evening to Mr. Good Evening again has, has never left me. So I'm glad you said it was authentic. I'll be going around telling people that now. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> I think we better leave it at that because there are a lot of books to be signed and uh, we don't want Maeve to be here all night. Uh, once again, thank you all very much. For, wait, one more? We've got one, one, one more. All right, one more. He's the, he's the producer, so we have to do what he oh, says. Oh, yes, yes. Um, hi, Maeve. One thing that strikes me about you, uh, and you've said it yourself, that you're a very sunny person and that you're always very positive. Um, do you have any regrets? Because you strike me as somebody who has no regrets in life. Do you have any? And if so, uh, what is it? Well, I have sadnesses in life, as everybody has. It would be a mad person who would think that, that everybody, that a life is perfect. There's no life perfect. There isn't a single person in this room that doesn't have some rotten thing happen to them uh, in their lives. And I suppose in my life, one of the things uh, that, that I'm sad about, I'm very sad that my parents died so young. I mean, they died really young. And I would love them to have seen how well and happily their children got along in life. I'd love them to have known that we'd all come back to live in Dorky, uh, you know, from different parts. We'd lived all over the place and we'd all come back to live in Dorky again and they were all such friends. I'm very, very sorry that my parents didn't live to be longer and to see the results of their hard work and all the sacrifices they gave up for us. And in funny, my two sisters and brother and I often 
have dreams that they just came back for a weekend. We all have the same dream that they came back for a weekend or a day and we're able to show them everything. And it's a very satisfying dream because you could, it's like as if you could um, let them know it had all been worthwhile. I'm sorry we didn't have children because um, I'm, you know, I sometimes think uh, with Gordon and myself as parents, those children would run the world. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, On the other hand, I have to say honestly that maybe the Lord knew what he was doing and that I might have been the mother from hell and driven them mad. But uh, I, I, would, I would like to have children. But, I, but again, I didn't make that into a, you know, a big crisis and uh, catastrophe. I was determined to love the children of my friends and my, 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 my relations. And my relations and friends have been terribly good at sharing their children. And we're now at the next generation where I'm an honorary grandmother to lots of people as well. And I enjoy being a grandmother more than I enjoyed being a mother in many ways. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's more fun. I'm sorry, uh, uh, one thing, I'm sorry that, uh, you know, at this end of, of life, it's, it does look, I mean, sunny and all I may be, but at the age of 62, I have to say that there's probably more behind than there is ahead in terms of years. I think anybody who thinks they're going to live to be 125 is a bit, is a little bit ambitious. I, I'm enjoying it all so much, I'd like to go on forever. But those are, are not huge things. They're not huge things. Um, uh, my parents' uh, young deaths, uh, there has to be something to say, they died while they were well and strong, and we remember them well and strong, they never became feeble. We have pictures of them young and proud and happy, and I hope that they know that we all did well and we'll never forget them. And I hope that uh, many children that, that I've been allowed to share in the parenting of, uh, you know, will, will continue to love me. And I hope that, you know, whatever length of time that we have left, will continue to be as happy as it's been. So I have had sadnesses, but they're not ones that I would be there with my hand over my face and looking out in the dark and saying, oh, woe is me, because compared to what a lot of people had, they were very little indeed. Thank well, you. You will continue to spread sweetness and light and good cheer until at least you're 126, never mind 125. Uh, thank you very much indeed for coming. Thank you all for coming tonight and good night. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Learn to type. Learn to drive. Have fun. Write postcards. Letters take too long and you won't do it. A postcard takes two minutes. Be punctual. Don't worry about what other people are thinking. They are not thinking about you. Write quickly. Taking longer doesn't usually make it better. Get up early. See the world. Call everybody by their first name from doctors to presidents. Have parties. Don't agonise. Don't regret. Don't fuss. Never brood. Move on. Don't wait for permission to be happy. Don't wait for permission to do anything. Make your own life. My mission this week is to be more Maeve. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.